Amen. Hasn't the music been a blessing this evening? It really has to my heart. Um, so Pastor told me that I have 15 to 20 minutes to preach here. What I didn't tell him is that I don't do math. So we could be here for a while, you know. If I, if I go too long, just start singing and I'll get the hint, I guess. Um, but tonight we're going to be looking at um, a familiar passage of Scripture, but that holds a lot of, uh, a lot of truth for us. Um, if we take a look at it in a little bit of a deeper way, and actually we'll be looking at a, at a couple different passages of Scripture, um, and what this is actually going to be is a little bit of uh, more of a lesson. I knew I'd forget to turn this on. Uh, it's going to be a little bit more of a lesson, um, and I'll be able to tell you just a little bit about what I've been able to do throughout my internship um, in actually what I've been able to do with the youth group at the church that I was interning at. And so I actually took a series that um, was made from a book that Pastor Nate actually um, has done a few times in the youth group. And so I took that. It's called Real Christianity, and it's uh, by Carrie Schmidt. And I was able to get through only a couple lessons, so I really channeled my inner Pastor Nate, just making you know one lesson last five lessons. Um, so... So anyways, um, so I really enjoyed doing that, um, and it was a really, really great opportunity for me um, because if any of you have ever taught before, uh, especially in front of uh, some younger people, it's interesting just how much you get convicted by the material that you yourself are teaching. You're teaching about all of these timeless and classic truths and you're like, man, that really hits deep for me, too. And so as I was going through it, I was thinking some of these truths are just so, so pertinent for each of our lives today as well. So we're actually going to be talking a little bit about uh, what is real Christianity? What does real Christianity look like? Uh, and then we're going to look at tonight two of the followers of Jesus and look, look at what their Christianity looked like, the people who knew Jesus, the people who saw Jesus. And we're going to kind of look at what that compares, how that compares to our lives uh, today and how we, how we actually live out our Christianity and see what changes that we can make. So if you would turn in your Bibles to John chapter 21, John chapter 21. So at the very end of my internship, I was able uh, to go on a missions trip uh, the very last week and we were able to go up into the UP and it was actually, I'd never really been, uh, I don't think I'd ever actually stayed that long up in the UP. It was for about a week, and we were pretty far north. So we were right by the, the Keweenaw Peninsula. And so we were able to see a lot of those cool sites and all the copper mines and everything like that. Um, and so that was a great, great treat. So we were up there at a church where the pastor was a really great testimony to us of the faithfulness um, that, you, that you can demonstrate in the ministry. This man was actually he and his family had gone from church to church, not purposefully, but they had gone from church to church, essentially being church doctors, where they go in to a church that's dying of about 10, 4, 5 people, and they get in with it, and they raise it back up to about 40, and uh, by, by the calling of God, they leave, and they go to another church that's like that. And so they feel God calling them to these different separate ministries, um, that, have, that have been struggling, and the Lord has really been using their faithfulness where they never have a, a strong salary or, or things like that. And so that was really, really impactful. We were able to go there with the youth group and 
be able to put on a VBS for the church, and it was a great encouragement for them, great encouragement for us. But I was able to preach this message there, and they had a small church building, and so in the back, you know, you had your kitchen right there in the back, and you had your bathrooms on the other side. So I'm preaching away on a Wednesday night, super excited to be able to preach this for the first time. And one of our team members, one of the guys in the youth group, um, he needed to use the bathroom, right? So he gets up and he goes into the bathroom. What I didn't know was this man has a chronic uh, bathroom singing disorder. So this man will sing in the bathroom. He probably sings in the shower too, I don't know. But I'm preaching away and the whole congregation hears some melodious songs coming from the bathroom while I'm preaching. So every time I preach this message now, I'm going to think about that. So if I come to this specific spot and I remember that it happened there, I'll let you all know, just so you know. So what we're looking at tonight is essentially just one long story, right? How how the, the Bible really is one big story. We start with Jesus Christ coming down to earth. And we, we need to remember, first of all, what's, what, what's the earth, what's, uh, what's happening when Jesus is coming down to earth, right? The, the Jews are under Roman occupation. They're suffering. And they have this long, long anticipated promise of a Messiah. This is something that's been written in their, uh, it's been prophesied about, it's been written for thousands and thousands of years. And this is something that they've dreamed of, that they've longed for. This is uh, the one who is going to rescue them, so they think, from the Roman occupation, from the Roman rule. He will not only deliver them politically, but he will deliver them socioeconomically. He will deliver them spiritually. He will deliver them militarily. In every single way, this Messiah will deliver the Jews. And so they're waiting for this man to come and to deliver them, and he finally comes. But it's nothing they think it is. It's nothing like they think it was going to be. He's born in a stable, and he's born to people who the world thinks are legitimate parents, and he's born in a place where the first people who come to see him are shepherds. This king of kings and this lord of lords who's supposed to deliver them from the Romans isn't born in a place where he can be nurtured and brought up in how he's supposed to be. He's born in a place that he's not taught how to live like royalty. He's not taught how to take respect from other people. He's taught to serve other people. And he's taught... To, to take snide comments. He's taught to be humble. And so it's a very unexpected birth that this person has. It was too humble for the Jews. But then he grows up and he begins his ministry, and his teaching is so profound that people start to take notice. People start to listen. Because he's saying things like, love your enemies, do good to the people who don't do good to you. Give to those that take from you. And this is something that these Jews had never, ever heard of before. Then his works were powerful. He did miracles, mighty, mighty miracles. He raised people from the dead. Jesus healed the lame. He healed the, the, the blind. 
People gravitated towards him because his love was also incomparable. Jesus loved the people that no one had ever not only loved, but even dreamed of loving. The people who nobody even liked, nobody wanted to hang around. Jesus would eat with these people. Jesus defied the religious constructs of the day. His claims were also confrontational, which made the Pharisees incredibly angry, obviously. So the Pharisees are angry at Jesus because not only is he eating with these people, he's fellowshipping with these sinners, but Jesus is also making claims against their religion, against what they say God says. Not only that, he's claiming that he is God. So, we have this Jesus, who's this figure who comes up, and he starts to get a following. These people start to follow him. They're his disciples. And let's just remember, folks, how much these disciples leave behind. They leave behind everything. Not only are they going away and leaving their family, they're leaving all prospect of a good job. They're leaving all prospect of a good career, a family life. These people are following Jesus at all costs, at any cost. You even remember that one story where Jesus is trying to make a point. This one person comes to him, let me bury my father. And Jesus says, follow me. Let the, bed, let the dead bury their dead. And so Jesus is demanding everything from this, these disciples. And let's remember that these disciples gave Jesus everything. They're following him where they don't have a place to sleep, Nobody likes them. They're following this man who is essentially uh, living in a place where he could die any day. And what are they going to do then? But they believe. They believe what Jesus is saying. And then he dies. This man who had given them so many promises of this uh, this new world, this new way to do things, And they had sold out for Jesus Christ. In their minds, they were completely and utterly sold out for Jesus. And he's gone. Their entire lives are wasted now. Because no matter where they go, no matter who they talk to, they're always going to be associated with this Jesus. And now he's gone. So it appeared that Jesus was this fraud Messiah. Jesus was not the person that he said he was. Jesus was this person who had uh, built up these grand castles in the sky and then had died, leaving nothing. And so we see that there's a lot of these disciples are really, really struggling because Jesus is gone. Their master, the person who is going to save them from the Romans, save them in every possible way, is dead. And so, that's where we find ourselves in John chapter 20, where Peter says, I'm going fishing. Now, we could, we could take this as just a regular fishing trip with the guys, right? Peter's saying, this is something that I'm good at. Come on and follow me. But, but remember that this, is, this was Peter's professional job before he met Jesus. This is what Peter left behind to follow Jesus. And now Peter's saying, I'm going back to what I left behind for Jesus. I'm going to go back to fishing because Jesus didn't work out for me. And so now I'm going to the thing that I know 
the thing that the world has secure for me, plan B, fishing. And how many times do we do the same thing where Jesus doesn't quite work out the way that we thought he would. He doesn't do the thing that we thought he would. We, we had faith in Jesus, and he didn't work the way we thought he should. And so we all say in our hearts, I'm going fishing. I'm going to go back to plan B. So we have this amazing story, right, in John chapter 20, where Peter goes fishing, and they fish all night. They don't catch anything. Jesus is on the shore, says, cast on the other side. They do it. They grab a heap ton of fish, right? And now Peter realizes that this is Jesus. And Peter, overcome with emotion, jumps into the water and swims away to Jesus and gets on the shore. This is kind of where we pick up. And can you just imagine with me for a moment, think about what the, disciples, the other disciples who are watching Peter do this because Peter's going right to Jesus, right? And they come and they're hanging back because don't you remember the last interaction that Peter had with Jesus? The last interaction Peter had with Jesus is denying him the third time. Peter sees Jesus after that he had just denied him three times, saying, I do not know who you're talking about. After he had just said, I will die for you. And so you can imagine the disciples are hanging back. This is kind of going to be a little awkward, right? A little bit of the elephant in the room here where Jesus and Peter are having their first interaction after this. So they sit down and they start eating. And we can pick up here in verse 15, John 21, excuse me, John 21, chapter 15, verse 15. So when they had dined, Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? Now, we don't know what more than these is talking about. Um, there's, people speculate all the time. But the important thing is, Jesus is asking Peter, whether he's saying, do you love me more than these fish? Do you love me more than fishing? Or do you love me more than these friends? Jesus is saying, do you love me more than anything else? Do you love me the most? Verse, uh, verse 15, he saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my lambs. He saith unto him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my sheep. He saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, Lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. Jesus saith unto him, Feed my sheep. Commentators are debate over the fact that Jesus asks Peter this question that seems to be the same three times. Some people say that the importance of this is that Jesus is asking Peter three times. And Peter denied Jesus three times. Peter said, I do not know him. I do not know him. I do not know him. And Jesus is saying after the fact, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? So maybe that's the reason that the third time Peter is grieved because Jesus said unto him again, do you love me? 
But another thing in there is that that word that, that Jesus says, do you love me, the third time, is actually a lesser form of love than the other two times. Jesus is asking, do you love me? Do you truly love me? Those first two times. And the third time, you can almost see Jesus saying, do you even love me? It's a lesser form of the word. Jesus is saying, will you give yourself for me? And what Peter is missing in these first two times is that Jesus is inviting him back to this glorious mission. Jesus is saying, come back and serve me. Come back and follow me. And finally, on the third one, Peter gets it. Jesus is saying, come back, and I have such a wonderful plan for your life. Because, folks, Jesus is showing unbelievable grace in this time here. Jesus is showing, through this encounter with Peter, that he accepts your belief, and he forgives your behavior. Now, of course, we all know that Peter is wrong in this instance. Peter, or Peter was wrong in his instance of denying Jesus, right? But Jesus is here saying that I know what you're going through right now. I know that you're sorry for what you've done, but don't live in your shame. Don't go about your Christian life living in the past mistakes that you've made. I am ready to receive you, and not just to receive you back, but to call you to a higher calling than I've ever called you to before. And we see after this, folks, such a glorious transformation in the life of Peter, where Peter here, he goes and he does what Jesus Christ tells him. And he leads such a great and wonderful revival at Pentecost. 3,000 people are saved and added to the church. And so this church in Jerusalem starts to grow and build. And so many people are getting saved. But first, we need to realize, we asked the question in the very beginning, what is real Christianity? First of all, real Christianity is relational. Peter and Jesus. Jesus is yearning, asking, wanting to have a relationship with Peter. A real relationship. And not just with Peter, but with all of his disciples. And his disciples are wanting the exact same thing. Why else would they leave all, forsake all, and follow him? And right there, at that fireside, Jesus was showing to Peter that he desperately wants a deep and meaningful relationship with Peter. And that's what a, a deep and meaningful relationship with Peter is. Do you love me? And on a side note there, it's significant to note also that Jesus is calling Peter back to service with him with that one question, do you love me? Folks, that is such an important part of service for Jesus Christ, is love for him. We cannot be serving Jesus Christ if we don't truly love him. So then second, real Christianity is transformational. If you would turn to Acts chapter 9 with me, Acts chapter 9, and we see 
that this great transformation of Peter leads him to Pentecost, where he is able to give the gospel and the Holy Spirit is upon them. And thousands of people get saved and added to the church. And now there's so many people that there can't help be uh, some people who take notice. Then there starts to be persecution. So there's persecution of this church in Jerusalem. People begin to scatter. But actually, this scattering is really, really fulfilling what Jesus Christ had said in the Great Commission. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. These people were serving God, but they were, they were in Jerusalem. And God was giving them a, a reminder. I want you to serve me, not only in Jerusalem, but in Judea, Samaria, the other parts of the world. And so now, one of the people that the Lord and His great masterful, masterful plan uses is this man named Saul. And now Saul, if we can just think for a moment, who Saul, who Saul was. Saul is essentially this incredible, incredible intellectual. Saul essentially is this guy who's got two PhDs, and he's got them both in ministry. I don't know what you call both of those, but he's got them in the Bible. He knows the scriptures. He knows God. He is a Pharisee of the Pharisees, as he calls himself. He, he, he lists all of his, um, his uh, things that he knows, things that he has accomplished, things that, that he is known for in that realm. He was about to be one of the greatest uh, Pharisees or religious leaders that, you could, that I think the world had ever seen. But this guy has such a zeal for Jesus, or I should say such a zeal for God, that he begins... Uh, to go on this crusade against these Christ followers, these people who, in his mind, are against God. They are a cult, and so he's essentially leading a crusade to wipe out these people who are following Jesus. And in Paul's mind, he is doing the exactly the right thing. He is following to the letter what God is telling him to do. And so you have these people who are running for their lives from Paul, and you have these people who are willing to die for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because remember, folks, in that day and age, the people who associated themselves with Christ, it was not a small thing to associate yourself with Jesus Christ who was crucified on the cross. This was something that you could not only lose your family, not only lose your job for, you could lose your life for. Very easily, in fact. These people who were identifying with, with Jesus were real Christians. These were people who not only believed in Jesus Christ, but did not care that other people knew it. And not only that, they knew that they were in danger as soon as they associated with this man, Jesus Christ. But their, their faith was that real to them that they said it doesn't matter because it was more important for them that Jesus Christ was made known than that they should live. And so now Christianity, you could say, has gone viral. These people are hearing about Jesus Christ. And so now this is what brings Saul onto the stage. Saul begins to go out and he begins to hunt down these cult people and begins to kill them. And so this guy 
is really, really doing a good job at killing these Christians. Paul, in his mind, is doing such a good job at doing what God has asked him to do. But then we see in Acts chapter 9, verse 1, and, yet, and Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slander against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth, and he heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said unto him, Who who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. So Saul has this huge encounter with God. You can tell that Saul knows exactly who this person is that, is, uh, that, that has shined this great light on him and has knocked him from his animal or knocked him to the ground, whichever one it may be. And so Saul is, says, Who are you, Lord? And then he hears some of the, one of the most surprising things, one, probably the last thing he was expecting. I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. And in that moment, it became clear to Saul that Jesus and God were not two separate identities fighting against each other. God was not the one that he served and Jesus the one who he was trying to put out. But they were one in the same. These followers of Jesus that he was persecuting are followers that he himself should be. Followers of the same God that he thought he was following. The, pe- the, the God that he was serving was the very God that he was at the same time fighting against. And so, you can imagine that this, for Saul, was probably the only way to get his attention and to change his mind. A direct encounter with Jesus Christ himself. Because this man was so smart, he knew all of the right answers, so to speak. And this was the thing. Jesus said, I am the one that you have been fighting against. And immediately we see this transformation in Saul. To where now, he goes away for a while... And now he begins to have this passion to share Jesus Christ, to be with other believers, right? And so now you have this church of believers who hears about Saul. And think about this, because this is something exactly that Saul would do. Say, oh, I'm a Christian now. I'm a Christian. I want to come to your church, actually. You want to, you want to open your doors for me? Tell, you, tell me where your church is, and I'm going to come in. These people probably thought Saul's coming in here to trick us and then to kill us all. And so this this man named Barnabas comes in, and the people trust Barnabas. And so Barnabas is able to help the church be able uh, to accept Paul, Paul to be able to become this credible person in their eyes. What an incredible transformation. And now Saul, turning to Paul, is now one of the greatest missionaries that that, that we know, all because of this encounter with Jesus Christ. So real Christianity is first relational and then powerfully transformational. And then thirdly, real Christianity is substantial. 
So we think about where did this term Christianity or Christian come from? Well, you had these people who go out. You have these people who were dispersed. You had Saul chasing them. You had other people persecuting them. And they were so far spread. Uh, these people began, as they were running, to tell the gospel. So not only are they dispersing into other places of, of the country, but they're also telling other people. So now more people are hearing about Jesus Christ. And so now the, the way or, or um, the Christ followers is not enough. So now they label them Christians. And like I said before, this was a, not a safe label. This is not something that people did to gain popularity. And now we think about today. How do people use the term Christianity today? How do the people relate with Christianity today? Christianity is such a cush-cush title today, folks. Christianity is something today where you have politicians that will throw out a Bible verse to gain a following. They'll say, yes, I believe in Jesus, just to gain a following. You have people on social media who will, uh, who will say that they are Christians so that they can get some more Instagram followers, so that they can uh, have a little bit more clout. You have people who will put Bible verses on their shoes or, or whatever uh, on sports teams to gain a following, to gain more people. That's not how it was like back in the time of Christ. These people did not share Jesus Christ as a way to become more famous, to be more popular, to be more relatable with people. This was an ostracizing thing that these people were sharing. That Jesus Christ has saved me and made a difference in my life, and now let me tell you about him. And like I said before, this, this news, this message, not only could, but it probably would get you killed if you were found by the, by the wrong people. And so we look at what a Christian, what, what Christian actually means. Christian is a sinner. Christian is a believer and a receiver, and a Christian is a follower of Jesus Christ. So, folks, the disciples in Jesus' time were not the people that we sometimes think they are. They were not necessarily religious people, they were blue collar workers, they were fishermen. They were normal, everyday people. They weren't even good people. You think about the things that the disciples did, the things that the disciples argued about. They were regular. They weren't working for their salvation. They were simply leaning and trusting on Jesus Christ. They weren't co-opting a favorable term. It wasn't for a good social standing that they were following Jesus. They weren't casually adopting a social tag. It wasn't for popularity. These people were real. They followed Jesus because they believed in him. So do you live your Christian life in a way that demonstrates the power of Jesus Christ in your life? Do you live as a disciple like the disciples lived 2,000 years ago? Do you follow Jesus as closely? Do you try to study his every move, just like if he was walking around on earth today? Do you try to tell everyone that you can about Jesus Christ? Are you living out a relational, transformational, and substantial walk with Jesus? 
Christianity back in the times of the early church was not like people think that it is today. It was raw. It was real. And so, folks, as I close, I'd like to leave you with this one question. What would change in your life if you had the relationship with Jesus Christ that these men did? What would change in your Christian life? Would you see, finally, that co-worker come to salvation? Would you see that family member trust Christ? Would you finally see growth in your own Christian life, in your, your daily struggles with sin? Could we possibly see a revival as a church? Could we see a revival as a country? What would change? The Lord is wanting yearning to know each and every one of us, for us to come to Him and for us to try to get to know Him. And folks, the question I have for you simply is will you take the challenge? Will you get to know Jesus Christ in a personal, relational way? Lord, I thank you for these principles that we can learn from the lives of some of your disciples. And I pray that you would help us to take them to heart. That you would help us to evaluate our own Christian lives and our own Christian walks. And that you would help us to be transformed when we look at who you are. Thank you so much for the work that you did on the cross for each of us, and I pray that you would help us to love you more every day. In Jesus' name, amen.